Oftentimes when people come to our house, especially around this time of year, one of the first things that they notice is my epic wood pile. And for you guys, I took a picture of the current state of my epic wood pile right there. See, right? It's pretty, I didn't think I would get applause, but you know, I, I am pretty proud of that, right? People, people notice that right, right away, right? Uh, it, it's more of a wood border. It's more of a defense that we have, right? Every, this time of year, the fall, like that puppy is fully stocked. Like that thing is ready to go. Winter is coming and the wood has been split and seasoned and stacked and it is ready for the winter burning season. And, but it's actually not something that I do just one time, right? You know, it's, it's wood life. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's all... It's, it's, all year round, like there's a cycle that's happening that I'm preparing all year round. In the summer and in the fall, I'm splitting and I'm stacking. Winter is obviously the fun part where you get to burn everything that you did. But times like now where I have everything I need, now I'm in scavenging mode. Now I'm like looking for more wood because what? Next year's coming. Next winter's coming. So I got to be prepared for that too. I mean, imagine my lunacy, if it were December, 20 degrees outside, and then I started looking for wood. That's not going to go very far, is it? I'm going to be very unprepared for that. I wasn't ready. In order to have the house warm in the winter, that's a, that's a process that's happening all year round. I need to be ready for the inevitability of winter in New Jersey. Like, it's coming. Like Winter will happen. Last week, we started talking about the inevitability of the return of Jesus Christ. And church, we have to be always ready, always preparing for the return of Jesus. It's something we need to be thinking about all the time. When will that be? When will the return of Jesus Christ be? Well, I'm going to tell us. I figured it out mathematically, so get ready. We don't. <laughs> I can't pull that with you guys. You're too smart for that. We don't know. And how does that impact our readiness? Jesus is going to tell us all about that. So if you're not already at Matthew 24, where we were, where Piero read for us last week, we jumped back into our Matthew series and we put the pedal to the metal. And Jesus started talking about the events of the last days, the last days that start the moment that he ascends back to the Father. We are in the last days now. We continue to be in the last days and we will be until he returns. The last days that started immediately after he was crucified, resurrected, and again ascended back to the Father. The last days will consist of tribulations. And they already saw some tribulations, right? The, Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. It was fulfilled. The part of the judgment of the leaders of Israel for their failures, for their hypocrisy, for their legalism, for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, they will be judged. There was a warning. To God's people, the tribulations are normative. They're going to continue to happen. This is the state of the Christian church. We will continue to face trials and tribulations. And Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. We should prepare now, we said last week, to trust Jesus, to take Jesus at his word until the very end through those tribulations. Jesus reminded us in that last verse in 35 last week that, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We need to trust Jesus until the very end. This week, Jesus changes gears. He answers the second question, which his disciples asked him all the way back in 24 verse 3, where they asked him, 
two questions. First of all, when will the destruction of the temple happen? And question number two, when, what will be the sign of your coming and of the last day? So last week we answered that question of when will the temple be destroyed? And then this, this week we are looking at what are the signs of his return? What are the signs of his parousia in the Greek? How will we know when the end of age will truly come? And Jesus answers that question with an answer that they do not want to hear. Let's hear it from Jesus himself in verse 36 of Matthew 24. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so the answer to their second question of what will be the sign and when will this happen, Jesus gives them a firm, I don't know. And he says, no one knows. And no one can know. And this has lost all sorts of theological panic because people are like, what? What do you mean Jesus doesn't know? Isn't he God? I mean, seems like he should know this sort of thing. Like, did he miss a memo? Like, why does he not know? How can he not know? Isn't he God? Shouldn't he know these things? It's, it's launched panic. It's launched all sorts of false teaching, saying, Jesus doesn't know? Well, maybe then he's not a God after all, so maybe your whole religion is false. It's given ammunition to the opponents of biblical Christianity. Well, Jesus doesn't know? Well, maybe he's not God at all. Maybe this whole thing is false. How is it that Jesus doesn't know? Well, it comes down to what is the Father's will and what the Father makes known to the Son. And this is something that the Father has not made known to Jesus. This does not mean that Jesus is not God. It means that in the Trinity, right, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, even though they are all God, there is a sort of submission that happens. And especially right now, when Jesus is on earth doing the physical work of redemption, he is in full submission to the Father in that plan. We're going to soon be in the events of the crucifixion. We're going to soon be in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and says, if there's any way that you can take this. If there's any way that I don't have to go to the cross, Father, please. But then what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitting to the Father's will in the plan of redemption. And that's what this is. It's particularly in effect right now. Jesus on earth doing the work of the divine rescue mission. And Jesus submitting to the Father. So there are things that the Father has not revealed to the Son, and this is one of them. When will Jesus return? No one knows. But it will be sudden, and it will be unexpected. And Jesus makes that clear by heading back to the Old Testament, to the story of Noah, and illustrating just how sudden his return is. Look at verse 37. He says, For, meaning because, right, as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let's pause really briefly and pick up one super important point here, just from this context. Does Jesus think Noah was a myth? No. Jesus thinks Noah happened. Jesus is quoting this. So, so when we start to get into conversations about, you guys really believe that? 
that, that, that Noah had two animals, brought them in two by two into a giant ark and smelly animals and all together and they were there for a year and all that stuff and we can easily say, well, Jesus did. We have to go back to what Jesus says about Scripture. Jesus did not think Noah was a myth. And so the story of Noah and the flood is found in Genesis 6. God responds in judgment again to the complete corruption of humanity with the exception of Noah and his family, for they were found righteous, right? The rest of the earth, he said, he would destroy. Noah instructed by God to build the ark because the flood's coming. Noah building the ark for over a year to the laughter and scorn of his neighbors. What else were Noah's neighbors doing during that time? Taking breaks from laughing and mocking Noah for building the ark. What were they doing? They were doing everything they normally do. They were going to work, they were having babies, they were getting married, they were eating, drinking, they were doing all of those things just like normal life. And this text tells us right up until the time the flood came. It was it. They had, they had no knowledge of it. Despite the fact that there was a guy building a giant ark in the neighborhood, they still were surprised the day the flood came. Jesus says, that's how it's going to be when I return. You guys are going to be going about your normal lives, doing all the things that you do, driving to work, reading your books, having babies, raising kids, going to school, all of that stuff, and I will suddenly return. He says that's what it's going to be like. People being caught totally unaware, unprepared, and Jesus tells them this is how it will be in the second coming. There are a few other examples that Jesus gives to prove his point. Look at verse 40. And two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had, been, had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Look at these examples of how sudden the return of Jesus will be. Two men are working in the field. One is taken. The other one is still there. Two women working at the mill, grinding grain. One is taken. The other one is still there. It is that sudden. Dispensational theology loves to descend upon this and say, see, there's the secret rapture right there. Okay, Especially, they would say, there's a secret rapture that happens before the tribulation right there. The only problem with that is the context of where we've been through, right? This is not, there's, there's no evidence biblically of this happening before a tribulation. In fact, Jesus goes to great pains to say it happened after the tribulation. And so it's, it's very dangerous to look at this and try and read a pre-tribulational secret rapture of the church that happens here. That theology, as I said last week as well, very, very new, within 100 years, right? But it seems to kind of be the default evangelical theology. It is foreign to church history, and it is dangerous because it transitions our hope from Jesus Christ himself to when are we going to get out of here? And that's very dangerous. It, again, kind of subtly shifts the focus on us as well. So I would say this is not a passage where you can prove a secret pre-trib rapture that's happening here. That doesn't mean there's not a rapture, the idea of a rapture where suddenly people are taken, right? We still see this, this is a rapture. This is where people are taken. There's no biblical evidence that it happens before the tribulation. 
Jesus said it himself. He who endures to the end will be saved. Right? We're not, our hope is not escape. Our hope is Jesus who causes us to persevere through the trials. The context is Jesus just told us 35 verses last week telling us it comes through tribulation. Again, ask the Jews when the temple was being destroyed if they escaped tribulation. Ask the Christians in North Korea or ask the Christians in Afghanistan or Syria or Iran if you think that they are escaping tribulation. They will tell you, I live in tribulation every single day of my life. Jesus says it's going to be sudden. It's going to have, we're going to have no warning. It's not going to work like we're, we're going to expect this. It's going to come, he says, like a thief in the night. A thief is not going to text you and tell you at 1 a.m. I'm going to break into your house so please make sure your safe is unlocked and I can get to all your valuables and just, you know, stay out of my way, right? No, if you know when a thief is coming, you're going to greet him on your front steps with your 9 millimeter, and you're going to have the phone ready to dial 911. That's what's going to happen, right? That's the idea. Jesus says, not going to, nobody's going to tell you that. I'm not going to give you advance warning. Otherwise, you would be informed. You're not going to be informed. Thieves don't announce their plans. They break in when you least expect it and when you're least ready. So what's the point? It's hard to miss because Jesus says it twice. In verse 42 and verse 44, he says, since you won't know when I'm coming, he says, therefore, stay awake. Since I will come when you least expect it, he says, therefore, be ready. Here's the point. Since Jesus will return unexpectedly, we must remain always ready. Since Jesus will return unexpectedly, we must remain always ready. So how do we remain always ready? The first thing is simply to be aware that it could happen at any moment. At church, how often do we go through our days and even give it a thought that today could be the day that Jesus Christ returns? Does it even cross our minds? Now, granted, when we have really, really bad days, maybe we're hoping that Jesus would return at any second. But on a normal Tuesday... Are we really waking up and saying, today could be the day? Today could be the day, like we just sang. Jesus splits the skies, the myriads of angels accompany him with their cries. And he sweeps us up with him, and we, we start to see the judgment. We start to see the new heaven, the new earth today. It leads us to a, a second application, being aware of the potential of the return of Jesus. That has to have an, a, an impact on the way we actually live our lives. Verse 42 tells us, therefore, stay awake. Note that doesn't say stay woke. I'm sorry, I, I couldn't resist that one. But there is application there as well. I mean, we shouldn't be getting sucked into unbiblical worldviews, Right? We should, be, we should be aware of these things. We should always have our biblical worldview filter going, filter these things out to be aware not to just go down these bad paths, right, unbiblical paths, believing the lies of wokeness or liberalism or progressive Christianity and then having Jesus return. You would know the error of your ways immediately when Jesus returned on that moment. And I guarantee you would regret deeply getting swept up in false theology like that. 
Verse 44 tells us, therefore, be ready. And in a practical sense, it means be ready to go. Are you thinking? Are you aware? Are you ready to go? Several months ago, my good friend Ron, and I never told him I was going to use this story, but oh well. My good friend Ron came over to the house, I thought unannounced. And I'm like, okay, Ron's stopping by. Cool. I was knee-deep in renovating the bathroom. Ron's here. All right. Fine. We sit down. We have a beverage. We start talking. We don't understand. I'm like, eventually, it clicks. Oh, wait a second. That thing that I was telling you about, I had invited Ron to an event, but I never told Ron when the event was. So Ron shows up ready to go to this event. I am nowhere near ready to go to the event because the event was the next day. I wasn't ready to go. It was my fault. I didn't tell him when it was. But I wasn't ready. I was caught completely unaware, and I was not ready to go. And we can act like that as adults, too. We get way too focused on this life and have to retrain our minds that the return of Jesus will bring us into his kingdom, which will bring us far more fulfillment than this world could ever bring us. Funny how as we get older, right? We start to yearn for that more and more. We start to yearn to get home. Like, when will I be done with this struggle? When will I be done with this body that continues to break down? When will I be done with this sin that continually entangles and drags us down? As you get older, you you start to long for home more. But it's the reality, church, that we have much work to do before he returns. And since Jesus will return unexpectedly, we have to remain always ready. And don't take that so much as the old youth group scare tactic, right? You watching that R-rated movie? What if Jesus came back right now? Hmm? Or worse, what are you doing with your boyfriend and girlfriend? Jesus comes back right at that moment, right? But there is truth to that. Like, why would we be knowingly engaging in sin if the return of Jesus is, is imminent, such as that. It's just not a good idea to scare people into morality when you're trying to talk about those things, right? The idea is not to have the return of Jesus scare us into moralism or just keeping, checking those boxes out of fear, but rather to let the reality of Jesus' return actually flow into how we live our lives in practical application. It means for us to avoid sin because we want to be found ready We want to be found faithful. We want to be found doing what God has called us to do when he returns. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 45. Tells another story to prove his point. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus goes on to provide another example of what it will be like when he returns. He asks them to consider what is a wise and faithful servant, especially when the master of the house is not around. And he answers his own rhetorical question. He says, well, a faithful servant would be doing what he's supposed to be doing. 
A faithful servant will be doing what the master has, has given him the responsibility to do. He will be making sure that people have food. He'll be making sure that the livestock have food, that everything is in order. And he will be rewarded with more responsibility and praises for his good work and his responsibility. But what about the wicked servant? The wicked servant. Well, a wicked servant would immediately see this as a golden opportunity to slack off. And maybe we have some of those friends, right? The guy at work who, when the boss is not around, productivity just goes into a nosedive and YouTube viewing goes skyrocketing, right? Or, or, or the kids at school, when the teacher has a sub, suddenly productivity, schoolwork, everything else is gone. When the cat is away, right, the mice shall play. But it gets worse with this guy. The, the, the wicked servant in this little mini parable is worse. Jesus says he goes on some sort of weird twisted power trip. He starts beating his fellow servants. And then he calls his frat buddies. And then they drink the master's whiskey and eat the master's food instead of doing what he's supposed to be doing. The master comes home and catches him red-handed in what he's doing. How does that go for him? Not well at all. In fact, Jesus says the master will cut him in pieces. Literally in the Greek, cut him in two. It's used for an execution of somebody who is guilty. That is, someone is severely or guilty of a very severe crime and therefore should be punished severely. And you might think, well, that's a little bit of an overreaction. It's kind of not in the story because this is the master's whole life. What if, we didn't say how long he's gone away for. What if all his livestock die because he didn't take care of them? What if his family is not cared for? What if enemies come in? There's a whole host of things that could happen. This is a very serious offense. But we all can imagine that Jesus isn't talking about an actual servant and an actual master. This is a parable. And in this parable, church, he's talking about the church and that he is the master and we are his servants. Will we, the church, be found faithful and wise like that servant who is doing what he is called to do when the master returns unexpectedly? Or will we be found to be like the wicked servant, literally spitting in the master's face, totally ignoring the responsibility that he's been given, taking his place as master, usurping his authority? You have no business doing so. And church, this is a profound warning for us to be found faithful. The reality of punishment, of eternal hell, if we are not. And so here's the point. Jesus will severely judge a lack of faithfulness. Jesus will severely judge a lack of faithfulness. We are all God's servants if we are Christians. We exist then to serve God. But there's a sense that this applies even more harshly to the leaders of the church. This is all under the backdrop then of the judgment of Israel's leaders, right? Jesus has been railing against the Pharisees and the scribes. In chapter 23, he calls them hypocrites not once but six times. They've been given so much responsibility, but they failed. And they'll be judged for that. They usurped the responsibility that they were supposed to have given by God to shepherd the flock of Israel and instead made themselves fat on the sacrifices of the people that were meant to forgive their sins. Elders, this should 
send shivers down our spines when we think of the massive responsibility we have and the severity of judgment. We've been given a charge by God to be faithful and wise in our shepherding of the church that he has purchased with his blood. In this, in light of judgment, we see that we need to protect the flock from false teaching as well. And we see that all over the Bible, but we see that in 2 Timothy, maybe chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, watch this, who is to judge the living and the dead, right, his return, and at his appearing in his kingdom, he says, this is what the charge is. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers like the Pharisees, like the scribes, like our false teachers today. They will turn away and from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, be the servant that is faithful and wise when Jesus returns unexpected. And Paul says, look, with judgment in mind, Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, will one day appear to judge, so preach the word. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, he says. He directed this to Timothy, but this is in direct application to us as elders and pastors of the church, but also to all Christians, our calling for what we are doing and being found faithful against the backdrop of what? False teachers. False teachers like the Pharisees and the scribes. False teachers, those who who start ministries and lead people away from the truth and wander off into myths like, watch this, obsessing over when Jesus will return. It's all over YouTube. There was one website I went to the other day that had a, a, a rapture meter, and it was, you know, it, was, it was pinned in the red, you know, and it was wobbling back and forth because the queen died, and the king is now in charge, and that refers to Second Leviticus 740, you know, something weird like that, wandering off into myths and endless genealogies. But we still see false teachers today, church, and in the midst of all this, we've got to remain faithful. Twisting, people twisting and perverting the word of God, making it say things about the return of Jesus that it never says, and we heard from Jesus himself. We do not know, we cannot know, don't worry about it. Worry about being faithful, is what Jesus says. But yet we have teachers like Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen or Todd White or Stephen Furtick or Joyce Meyer We want to continue to twist the word of God and lead people astray. You hear the songs of Hillsong and Bethel. The list goes on and on and on. That's where we are right now. We even see pastors in our own town perverting the truth of God and sanctioning homosexuality. And the pastor of the church. This is who Jesus is talking about. When he returns, will he find false teachers over his flock doing what he told them not to do? Woe unto them. They will be cut in two. They will be, they will be thrown where the rest of the hypocrites are, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about an eternal hell there. He's talking about the reality of an eternal hell. Hell is for those who reject the truth of who Jesus is and who take the mantle of their office as pastors and teachers and Christians even and twist it for their own gain, just like the wicked servants. 
Wicked servants are not getting away with anything. And in the backdrop of such false teachers, we have to remember that. We have to say, okay, deep breath, they're not getting away with anything. It's not our job to go after them. Right? We have to expose, mark, avoid false teachers, fine, move on. It's not our job to take them down. Right? Jesus is coming. Vengeance is mine. He says, let that be a warning and an exhortation to us to be all the more faithful in following Jesus because, and especially in light of his unexpected return. How do we do that? And Jesus has one more parable. Look at verse 25, or chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give me some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Well, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Okay, straight up. This is a weird parable, right? We've got ten virgins. We've got lamps, a bridegroom. Is this an episode of The Bachelor? What is going on here? <laughs> Full disclosure, don't watch that show. I've never watched that show. I'm just assuming it's really bad, okay? So don't. So... We have to unpack the context here, right? In ancient Jewish weddings, right, the wedding day, the groom would head to the bride's house where the ceremony would be held. After that, there would be this extravagant wedding procession from the, the groom's house, right, to the, to, I'm sorry, from the bride's house to the groom's house where they would then have what we know as the wedding reception or the wedding feast. And everybody in the bridal party then would accompany them on this procession, which, I don't know, could be a couple miles or whatever it might be, most of the time at night, because that's when all good parties happen, right? So they're, they're, they're walking down, and they have torches. They have lamps. And it's this, what I would imagine, somewhat beautiful. There are pictures, if you Google it, there are pictures of what that might look like. It would be kind of beautiful to see, a, you know, 30 people walking in the darkness, lighting up the way with their torches as they go, and the bride and groom celebrating and dancing and getting ready to go to the reception, right? It was probably very beautiful. All their friends and family surrounded them with torches lit, lighting the way to their, their new life, in a sense. And so this particular parable, there were 10 bridesmaids, or as ESV translates, virgins, because they would assume that they are young, and they would assume that they're unmarried, so naturally then they would assume that they are virgins, as they should be. So there are 10 bridesmaids. They're hanging around outside the groom's house for the ceremony to be over, right? Maybe the pastor went long in the ceremony. It took longer than they thought. Five of the bridesmaids were prepared. They had extra oil. They were ready to go. Five of the bridesmaids were not prepared. Now, in those days, these are, as best we can surmise, probably not like a little lamp, like, you know, you see the Aladdin's lamp kind of thing with the little flame. Probably not that. Probably more like a torch, which was a stick then wrapped in some sort of rag or cloth, dipped in flammable oil, and then set on fire. We think they probably could have burned for 15 minutes or something like that before you had to kind of unwrap more of the cloth to expose some of the fresh cloth, re-soak it in the oil, 
and then light it again. Right, so the idea, of course, with the wedding procession is that you want it to be ready to rock. Like as soon as that door opened, torches on, everybody, let's go, party's going to happen. Right? So there's one group of the bridesmaids that didn't bring backup oil. Right? And the self-righteous part of me just rises up in this, and I'm like, that's what you get. You did not plan ahead. Like, that sounds like a big you problem to me. Like, you know, I brought oil, like, I, and they say, rightfully so, I can't give you my oil, because if I give you my oil, then nobody's going to have enough oil, and then the bridezilla is going to freak out, because there's not going to be torches lit in her wedding procession, and then we're all in trouble. So, sorry, go to Walmart, or, you know, oil or us, or whatever it is, and get yourself more oil, and then come back here. We'll be here. It's cool. So, they do that. They go, they hang their heads in shame. They go to the oil mart. They try and buy more oil. They get more oil. They come back. But what's happened by the time they come back? Procession's over. Everybody's inside. Doors closed. They missed it. They weren't ready. They didn't, they didn't get a second chance. It's, the procession happens one time. And they're out buying their oil. So what happens now? Jesus finishes the story. Look at verse 11. He says, afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. Open the door to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. The bridesmaids bang on the door and say, let us in. We're here. And Jesus gives the unfortunate response. Truly, I do not know you. Another sad reality that one day it will be too late. We have to point out, take this point, when Jesus returns, it will be too late to repent and believe. When Jesus returns, it will be too late to repent and believe. The sad state of, of, of America is that we never think about the things, or seldom think about the things that matter, and especially the spiritual things. There's a spiritual reality that hangs in the balance behind all the distractions that we all go through every single day. And the average American just goes through life and never gives it a second thought. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll think about Jesus or maybe I'll get right with God someday or maybe I'll think about it a little bit differently and they just keep delaying it. Why? Because Monday comes and Tuesday comes and work comes and raising kids happens and all this stuff. It just pulls you along and you never have that, that, that time where you need to think about what's going on. You're not going to get a second chance. The door will one day be closed. No matter how hard you bang on that door, if you have not repented and believed in the gospel now, you will not have an opportunity to do so later. And a few months ago, we passed one of the scariest verses in the Bible in Matthew 7. Maybe some of you are thinking of this right now. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus speaking again, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Same thing he said at the door. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's, there's a real truth in this church that even those that we think were in the church that we think are safe, I mean, I, I've been going to church since I was four years old. 
Right? We don't struggle so much with cultural Christianity up here in the Northeast. Maybe some areas in the South in the Bible Belt or whatever, what have you, things like that, where it's more of a cultural thing. Right? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Your mom and dad being Christians don't make you a Christian. Right? Doing good works, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, doesn't make you a Christian. We're not, we're not stacking good deeds on the one side of the scale that hopefully one day when we get up to heaven, our good, days, good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. It doesn't work like that. There is no scale. It's guilty or innocent. And the only way to be declared innocent is right now when we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ with all of our heart and fall on our face before him to save us. That's how we do that. There's not going to be a second chance. And one more time, Jesus drives home the point of this whole passage. Look at verse 13. Another therefore. Watch, therefore. Watch, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Therefore, watch. Therefore, be alert. Why? Because you don't know when I'm coming back. So be ready. Last week in part one, we said prepare now to trust Jesus to the end. This week in part two, I'll put it this way. Prepare now for the return of Jesus. Prepare now for the return of Jesus. How do we prepare for something? I feel some of you are just like, it would be a lot easier if we just knew a little bit more about when he's coming back. Like, do I get like five years? Do I get to get married? Like, what do, we do? do I get to have kids? Do... I don't know. Jesus doesn't know. And here's the truth. That has no impact on you right now. Ours is to prepare. Like he's coming today. Like he's coming this afternoon. We don't need to know when it is happening. Jesus' point is that it will happen. No one will know ahead of time, and we must remain always ready for his return. How do we remain always ready for his return? Well, once we said it already, cultivate awareness. Like, does it even pop into your brain? Do you even think about it? Do you even consider that today, each day that we wake up, could be the return of Jesus? How would that affect your day? Like, those of us who have bosses, right? If you know your boss is coming in, you know you're going to get a visit from corporate or whatever else, right? You're ready. You know it's coming. You're prepared for an inspection. You're prepared for a test. You're prepared for whatever. Jesus says, you're not going to know. I'm not going to tell you. Prepare now. Cultivate that awareness. Do you have a biblical understanding of it? Not getting sucked into the false teaching that is around end times eschatology on YouTube or anywhere else. But taking Jesus' words here in context, he says, therefore, because of that, because you're not going to know, be ready. Stay awake. Watch. Maybe a second way that we can remain always ready is to take responsibility. So be aware, but also take responsibility. Every day, in light of the possibility of Jesus' return, are we more like the wise and faithful servant? Or are we more like the wicked servant? If Jesus were to return tomorrow, today, whatever, what would he find you engaged in? What would the pursuit of your heart? Yeah, we've got to go to work. And yeah, the history of the church has been like, there have been some fringe groups that said, well, we might as well just quit our jobs and divorce and just wait on a mountaintop for Jesus to come back. Wrong. We're not talking about that. We still have to be, remember Jesus said last week, the gospel still has to be preached to the ends of the earth. Be responsible. Take dominion. 
like one of our elders said this morning in our meeting, like the, the dominion mandate's still in effect. Go, subdue the earth, do things, create things, point back to Jesus Christ, live your lives, marry, have babies, right, to the glory of God. Do all that, but keep in the back of your mind, take responsibility. It could be today. He could return. Where is your heart and your affections in all this? If Jesus were to return, would you have a hard time pulling yourself out of this world and its entanglements? Would you be disappointed if he returns? And then I get this. I mean, I'm a youth group kid, right? I remember the youth group guys giving this talk, and I'm 12 years old, and I'm just like, there is no, nope, there's no way. I mean, I got goals, man. I need to drive a car. Like, I want to get married. Like, I have all these things that I want to do. I don't want Jesus to come back, right? You can't be 12-year-old you. You've got to think and convince, what am I actually saying there? Do I think for a second that what Jesus is going to offer me when he comes back is not going to make anything this world has to offer pale in comparison? It will. You've got to remember, think biblically about this. Take the responsibility of this. What will actually happen when he returns? But then go to the other side and say, what does that mean for those that don't know Christ? We've got work to do, people. We've got his sheep that have come into, need to come into his pen before that is to happen. And this speaks to the third application, maybe cultivating awareness, taking responsibility, pursuing holiness. Every single day, our calling is to bring glory to God. How? By growing more into the image of God. Cultivating holiness. Growth and holiness is our primary calling as Christians. When Jesus comes back, we want to be for, for, maybe if I could simplify it, you want to be as sanctified as humanly and spiritually possible when Jesus returns. That's the goal. What, how, how much can I grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ before that day happens? That's what I want to do. That's my mission every single day. And every day that he gives you that he hasn't returned, it's one more day to grow in his grace. And church, I was thinking about this as I was walking the dog this morning. I'm like, you got you to bring the gospel back into this, right? The, there is this reality that we should be because of who we are in Jesus Christ. We should be expecting that day with confidence. We should be waiting for our Savior. That is our only hope in life and death is our Savior Jesus Christ. And because of what he's done on the cross and because of our identity in him, we should welcome that day. We should want those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We should remember that we are his children, that we are forgiven, that we are dearly loved, that we have an inheritance waiting through our faith in the gospel. Maybe we're not even sure we're saved. I would say get sure. Talk to somebody. Be sure now because when he comes, it will be too late to repent and believe. We can cultivate awareness, we can take responsibility, we can pursue holiness. In other words, we live our lives as authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, entrusted with the gospel, doing the work he's called us to do in the church, living our lives faithfully, and being always ready for his return. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the promise of your coming, we thank you, Lord. That is, as much as this world has to offer in your common grace, and there is so much good that you have blessed us with, 
in relationships, in the beauty of creation on a beautiful day like today, in family, in health, and all the gifts of food and drink and other things, Lord, that are your blessings, Lord, but keep us from being overly entangled in those things. Help us to think that this could be the day that you return, and am I where you want me to be? Am I, am I pursuing holiness? Am I cultivating that awareness? Am I taking my responsibility seriously as a disciple? Lord, we pray that in each of our lives we would prepare. And Lord, may that even be with joy as we, as we await the consummation of our salvation that Jesus has purchased on the cross with his blood. Father, keep us faithful. Protect us from false teaching. Strengthen our hearts. Confirm and establish us in the hope that is Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.